Okay, I'm, I'm going to have a look. I'm going to click into... Let me, let me try this website and see what the headlines say. Right, here we go. Mm. <laughs> right, so the first headline um, that's in my face is that heat waves are unleashing a deadly but overlooked pollutant. Don't put your kid on an electric bike. Humans aren't mentally ready for an AI-saturated post-truth world. A Russia-based hacking rampage hits US agencies and exposes millions. I'm, I'm scrolling down and it's not getting any better. How to survive a devastating earthquake and a firestorm. There's a podcast on how humanity can avoid an AI takeover. I have to say, just scrolling up and down the page of this website is not making me feel optimistic about our future, about humanity's future and engineering's role in it. Now, of course, I am not suggesting that these warnings are outright wrong, but I felt a little bit different when I've been speaking to experts in recent episodes of Create the Future. I've been feeling a little bit of optimism for what's coming next. You know, when I hear about all the groundbreaking innovations that our guests are bringing into the world, the fact that they're trying to improve things for humans, it does make me feel like, yes, there might be a way through. So for this episode of Create the Future, I'm going to unplug from the Wi-Fi, I'm going to block out those headlines, and I'm going to try out a more optimistic outlook. And we've got the perfect guest to do just that. Optimism is the new punk. We'll be speaking to Lord John Brown, who is a former chief executive of BP and founded and now runs Beyond Net Zero, which invests in entrepreneurs who are coming up with solutions to the climate crisis. It's quite easy to get a lot of uh, airtime by saying things are dangerous. You don't get a lot of airtime saying things are wonderful. Carry on. And so, again, balance is needed here. He's also the chairman of the Queen Elizabeth Prize and has written a fascinating book called Make, Think, Imagine. We'll be talking to John about his career, his book, why he thinks engineering could help us through the climate crisis and what a healthy dose of optimism could do for our industry and our futures. Thank you so much for joining us, John. Could you tell us a little bit about your very varied career in engineering so far? Well, I, of course, I didn't start as an engineer. I went to Cambridge to study natural sciences with an emphasis on applied physics, which I did and I enjoyed enormously to such an extent that I thought I'd stay at Cambridge forever. And indeed, I got a very good offer to do just that. But uh, my dear late father, being a very practical man, said, I think you ought to go and get a job, a real job, with real people. After all, you don't know whether you'd like it if you, unless you did it. And if you ask for some time off from Cambridge, if they really want you, they'll always have you back. And if they don't want you, you'll learn about it earlier than you would otherwise do. My father, who just retired from the... Anglo-Iranian oil company, latterly called BP, said to me, why don't you just call them up? So I had an interview and I said, I'd like very much to join for a year to gain some work experience and I would like to go to America. 
being young, you can be that declaratory. They agreed to both things. On the uh, 14th of November, 1969, I got on a plane armed with my posting letter from BP, which read, Dear Brown, your posting to Anchorage, Alaska is confirmed. Please turn up at this flight. Now, Alaska was not my idea of where I was going to go. I thought I was going to go to New York or Houston or somewhere, uh, but I went to Alaska. And I worked as a field assistant petroleum engineer. I had done some very brief study on engineering and realized very quickly that I had to convert from a physicist to an engineer, so I went to night school. And it was the best thing I ever did because the bottom fell out of the physics market. And actually, I found I had a real appetite for solving real problems with practical applications, which subsequently came business applications. Between working in the field and working in the office and using some of the skills I'd picked up at Cambridge in the 60s, I wrote a simulation program for the very big oil field on the North Slope of Alaska called the Prudhoe Bay Oil Field, which was actually used for another 20-something years after I left it. A good piece of engineering should last two decades, and so that's a great example. John, could you tell us what you did during your career as an engineer at BP and then after that as well? Certainly. I was then posted to New York, moved to San Francisco, Calgary, all doing field engineering. I went to the Stanford Business School. My next engineering job was being uh, the field and production manager for the 40s field complex in the North Sea. I was translated rather amazingly from that job to become the group treasurer and the group finance coordinator of BP. In 1994, I was told I was going to be the boss, the CEO of BP, which I was from 95 to 2007. So that was my engineering business career with BP. The thing about uh, BP or about these companies like Rio Tinto, BHP Shell, at their heart, of course, they are technological companies. They have to deliver things on the ground, create successful big projects which are safe, which don't damage the environment, and which uh, last for a very long time. The facilities which are put in place, like pipelines and terminals, they have to last well beyond 50 years. One of the things I did do while I was CEO of BP, I realized with my team, when I took over in 1995, that things were not the way they seemed to be. After the first Rio summit on the environment, it was pretty clear that there was something called global warming, something called climate change, which was probably happening. And so after a lot of study and debate, uh, BP became the first company in the oil and gas business to declare publicly that the oil and gas business was the problem, and now it had to become part of the solution. It had to do something about its emissions of carbon dioxide and methane. I believe we've come to an important moment in our consideration of the environment. It is a moment we need to go beyond analysis and to seek solutions and to take action. 
It is a moment for change and for rethinking uh, corporate responsibility. I stood up in 97 and made a speech to lay out the programme of what we were going to do, which we pursued over the remaining 10 years that I was CEO. And when I left BP, of course, I then went into the alternative energy business, into renewable energy, into natural gas. Three and a half years ago, I established a private equity fund called Beyond Net Zero. Uh, it invests in companies uh, that are reducing greenhouse gas emissions in line with targets which get us to net zero in 2050, and we measure it annually. Thank you. Again, it just shows you all the different parts that you can pursue as an engineer. One of the things I take away from, from you and your career is the topic of optimism, and that's something that you explore in your book, Make, Think, Imagine. So, John, could you give us a little summary of what this book is about? Engineering is the pivot point, the fruits of discovery that happen in laboratories, the ideas that people generate. It stands between that activity and the activity of delivering something on the ground, either as a business or as a public service, something which is very tangible. It converts ideas into reality. So converting ideas into reality seems to me to be at the heart of civilization. And so this book is about that. Engineering is so undervalued, so underregarded. And it reminds me very much of conversations you used to have in companies some time ago. People would say, well, now who's going to get this job? And they'd say, well, we've got a lot of men here who could do it. And so I would say, well, what about women? And they would say, oh, well, we meant that too. People talk today about science and technology. And you say, what about engineering? And they say, oh, yes, we meant that too. We're very underrepresented in thinking. Engineering is in the middle here. And it's really powerful and very important. When people have ideas, they suppose it's a public service, and they then make a public policy about something. Unless they've thought through the engineering, the idea is here, the announcement's here, and nothing happens in between because it needs to be really engineered. And engineering is about marshalling resources, putting them in the right order, thinking things through, and doing them. It really does require you to make something first, then think about it, then imagine what you do next. That's why I entitled my book, Make, Think, Imagine. I had a lot of people coming to me and said, you've clearly got that all wrong. It should be the other way around. You know, imagine, think, and make. And I said, no, I don't think the inventors of the wheel probably imagined too much. They made one. And then they thought about how to make it better. And then they imagined what they could do with it. You know, rather than have donkeys carrying it on their back, they could have horses pulling carts. Big difference. Who have you written this book for and why did you think it was important to write it? I wrote it, of course, for engineers. I had to remind people to be proud of what they're doing. 
feel good that they're contributing to the future and that we needed more people in this area, notably people of diverse backgrounds, women, gay people, a lot of people who were not straight white men. To me, that was really important to make it accessible for the audience closest to the subject, actually. And then I wanted people who were outside the subject to realise why engineering was important. I really enjoyed when you talked about holding the axe hammer and then you link that to the very complex mechanical clocks. You know, a flint hand axe, if you pick one up, uh, you can quickly understand that it was ergonomically appropriate. It fits well into the hand and you can imagine yourself doing something, probably not very gentle. At the other end of the uh, spectrum, I do collect watches and non-digital ones. I often wear a digital watch, of course I do, but I collect watches which are mechanical. The analog counterpart of digital equipment is a very important thing to understand and it challenges the maker. And this is about making. And you link that to the you know, engineering and humanities progress. So could you talk a little bit on that point for us? Well, I think it's a staircase that humanities sort of built for itself. And progress is marked by the chapters in engineering. For example, in my own field of energy, however much we despise coal today because it is a highly polluting substance when burnt. It did transform the way humanity thought about itself. The people who could only work with the power of their muscles to people who could deploy coal and therefore machines, steam machines, to do the work for them. It transformed uh, what we did as a society. Of course, the really rich people and the nobility and stuff like that were doing all that anyway, but uh, the vast bulk of people were not. And so that transformation has taken place. And that's what today, again and again, we're seeing happening. We can do things which are different. We can communicate differently. We can see things differently. So it strikes me that you have a very optimistic outlook about how the future of humanity and engineering is going to progress. So can you tell us a little bit about where that optimism comes from? Well, my optimism stems from an observation of what humanity is actually on balance doing. There are bad moments, but uh, a lot of very productive things have come from engineering. And I really do believe that Unless you believe the best is yet to come, it's not wholly clear that you can inspire anybody to do more and more in this world, not just for themselves, but for other people. And the measure of people is what they do for others, not what they do for themselves. And they need to be inspired. They need to believe, based on track record, that what they're doing has meaning because there is a future. And do you think that there's a difference in, in the level of optimism between people in the East and West? I don't know is the answer. I, I think it does depend on what you've been through. 
So in my own family, so my mother, who died many years ago, was a survivor from Auschwitz. So she survived from the death camps. My entire maternal family, bar one, and it was a big one, were murdered in that process. So my mother always believed that actually the best is yet to come. That was not a life, she said, I went through, but a life is always possible. And the best is yet to come. That's what uh, a lot of people believe. And, and put it like this, if they don't, then we need to figure out how to make it possible for them. I'm very concerned about the global south and what to do about climate change. We have to do much more in getting the global north helping the global south. Because if we don't, then the global south will not believe as strongly in the future as they might otherwise. So there's a sense of fear as well. And I think I was reading the headlines of a website earlier about security breaches and AI taking over the world and earthquakes and all these kind of very scary, disastrous occurrences. Um, how do we inspire people in the face of all of that to remain optimistic? We do have to have a sense of proportion. And we need to believe and do something about when things really are dangerous, we as a society for the public good need to do something about it. So take nuclear weapons, nuclear disarmament, there have been controls in place, and so on. Whether they will last in their present form, I don't know, but at least you can revise them and upgrade them. I seem to recall from my history books that traveling by train at any more than five miles an hour would be disastrous to people's health. And they were advised not to do it or take smelling salts with them just in case they needed reviving. There were real concerns about genetically modified organisms going into the, into the food cycle. These proved to be somewhat unfounded. Of course, there's a different issue, which is monoculture and the impact on uh, biodiversity, but that's not to do with GMOs. Climate change is a real fear, but strangely, people aren't frightened of it. Well, not at least on the basis of what we're all doing. And now there's a concern about uh, artificial intelligence, I'd like to turn the thing around, though. There are a tremendous number of things that AI can do for us, not just improving productivity, but creating better insights, much more safety, safe processes, and detection of things which aren't good for the public good. Now, on the counterpart, it can also create devices to defraud and otherwise hurt the public. It can mislead. We need to figure out how to detect these instances much faster. And I believe that we will do that. But we must make sure we don't be so concerned about the downside that there is no upside left. You can persuade yourself that you mustn't do anything. And that's not true. So, John, there's one quote that I read in your book that I feel really summarizes what you're talking about, and that's optimism is the new punk. I wondered whether you might read a little bit out from your book around that quote. It's too simplistic to declare that everything is broken and that we're all doomed. 
When faced with the big social, technological and economic challenges, how simple it is to scream, something must be done, without specifying what that might be. We live at a time when hopefulness can sometimes seem to be in short supply. As Anders Sandberg of Oxford University has pointed out a little while ago, most people were net optimistic. And an easy way to show individualistic rebellion was to proclaim a dark future. Today, it is the opposite. Optimism is the new punk. I think he's right. I love that. It's, it's fantastic. So, so tell me what punk means to you and why you think optimism is the new punk. <laughs> it's the rebellion. It's quite easy to get a lot of uh, airtime by saying things are dangerous, we've got to do this, we've got to do that. You don't get a lot of airtime saying things are wonderful, carry on. And so, again, balance is needed here. I was quite struck by reading an article by the chairman of the Federal Trade Commission in the United States. And she pointed out that um, there is plenty, a body of law that could be used against all the bad outcomes of AI, at least as she saw it, and that we didn't need more laws. I believe we need better ways of detecting what's going on because things can move very quickly. And I'm sure that can be engineered without affecting privacy. So you're looking for engineering solutions to the problems we have? Yes. After all, that's what we have. All solutions are based on engineering outcomes. They really are. Whether it's a drug, method of delivering the drug, whether it's uh, detecting what's going right and wrong, climate change, pandemic, economic disaster, they're about engineering solutions. What does this mean for the future of our industry? Well, our industry is not one industry. We are the means whereby that many industries will be developed. And we have to be careful because we need to transition a lot of these industries from, uh, let's say, the basis upon which they were set up post the Second World War to today with uh, very different approaches to environmental care, notably carbon dioxide and methane emissions, greenhouse gases, but for everything else, higher degrees of involvement with people in a way which doesn't hurt the people, but also with people with different skills base. Transitioning from where we are to where we need to go requires us to think about just and fair transitions when it comes to the people involved in industry. And you can see that beginning to happen in parts of the United States. I think you can begin to see uh, certainly the thinking behind it in the United Kingdom. We can't transition in the way in which, let's say, the coal miners were transitioned out of a job into nothing. Has your optimistic view changed since you wrote the book? Because it's obviously been quite a challenging few years since the book came out. Well... To an extent, yes. Uh, I still think my overall view is the best is yet to come. I do believe that. I'm more concerned about climate change than I ever have been. The speed with which we are doing things is inadequate. We have wasted a quarter century doing very little. 
and now we need to quadruple our activity as measured by investment in getting down to net zero by 2050. It'll be a monumental task. I'm optimistic that we could do it. The question is, am I optimistic that we will do it? But I, I've seen some great things happen. One of the laureates of the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering, Robert Langer, was involved in the discovery of the Moderna vaccine. That vaccine, the BioNTech vaccine, AstraZeneca's work, all this sort of thing says, it's amazing. You know, we discovered things in laboratory, we tested them out in prototype, we built factories, we engineered the product in the end. That makes me feel very optimistic indeed. We can do that again and again. Are there any situations in which you think we should actually ditch the engineering and technology? No, I don't think so. I think I worry sometimes the misapplication, which is the inappropriate application of genetic engineering with human tissue. But I think that's only happened once to the best of our knowledge. And it was absolutely criticized by everyone in the world. There are a lot of self-policing mechanisms. One of the things which is important is in the general education of the engineer that more than just engineering needs to be put into the curriculum. I think an engineer, when she looks at statics and making a digital twin, things like that, it would be quite good to read a novel or two to understand history. And it would be even more important to understand what goes on in the minds of the people who will take whatever product it is and use it. There is a lot in the understanding of the human condition as portrayed by many people over millennia. And that's what people need to get access to. You also wrote another book which was called The Glass Closet. You know, engineering is about people, as we've talked about. You're also an advocate for more diversity and inclusivity, as you've mentioned, particularly for the LGBTQ plus community. So could you tell us a little bit more about that work and why it particularly matters to you? This work matters a lot to me. I wrote it from um, personal experience. I um, was in the closet until I was 60. Partly, I was frozen in time. When I went to Cambridge University, for two men to have sex with each other would have got them into jail. It was a crime. On that basis, there was plenty of bullying, a lot of innuendo, a lot of watching what people did. The law changed while I was at Cambridge, but behavior didn't. Laws are one thing, culture is something separate. The second thing was that I was brought up by my late mother and her experience in Auschwitz reminded her or told her that there were two things in life you had to remember. Number one, never tell anyone a personal secret because they'll surely use it against you. And number two, never be an identifiable member of a minority because when the going gets tough, the majority always hurt the minority. However bad these lessons are, I regret to say they're true, 
and they describe a lot of human behavior. So I firmly went into the closet when I was at Cambridge. It was interesting that I thought to myself that I'm here and uh, if I ever came out of the closet, I'd lose all my friends, I'd lose my respect in business. And what I hadn't noticed was that things were changing around me. Not a lot, but some things were changing. But I wasn't. I was outed by the Daily Mail group on a story told by someone I had a relationship with for three days. I was covered in, I think, every newspaper in the world. And as a result of that, I concluded that I absolutely had to resign from BP so that BP wasn't the subject of uh, a campaign, uh, which I did. And it was many years afterwards that I was pushed into writing this book about my own story and then asking people about their story. When I resigned from BP, my mailbag, in those days you actually got letters from people who'd been in similar situations, some older people who'd been to jail as a result of it, their life was destroyed. It seemed to me, write a book about why it's good to actually recognize what's going on around you. The test for a company is how well the people inside the company work together. And the evidence is very clear. The stronger the team, the better the performance. And a strong team can only be built by inclusion. If people can see they're not included, they realize they're not part of a team. They're not part of the company. So inclusion, in my mind, is one of only two things leaders need to remember. Number one is inclusion. Bring people together. And number two is purpose. Remind people that this is what we're doing and this is why we're doing it. And be very clear about that. I'm sorry that you had to go through all of that and were put in these positions. What would you say to a young person from a marginalised background who's considering engineering today? When you are tested as an engineer, you're not tested on a basis of pure opinion. You're tested on a fact base. While people could say, well, a bridge is very beautiful, that may not be relevant if it falls down. So it has to be built to stand. And of course, aesthetically pleasing, but the first thing is, it's got to stand there. So when you study as an engineer, you're tested against hard-edged facts. If you come from a place where you worry about yourself and you say, are people looking at me in the right way? Do I fit in? All these really bad thoughts that people have because it's induced into them by the environment in which they live. Get out of that. Go to a place where you can stand on your accomplishment and then the world is yours. Do you feel optimistic about the inclusivity of engineering? Long way to go still. You take uh, gender. First of all, I think it's 23% of engineers are women. Not enough. Nothing like enough. And uh, we need to keep pushing hard in this area. Gone are the days, I think when most people say, well, engineering is not for girls. But I think uh, that's slowly going. We need more role models. When I was president of the Royal Academy of Engineering, one little accomplishment we made was to take five gigantic photographs of the then very rare person called 
a woman fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering, we blew up these huge photographs and we put them up. They were the only big photographs and they were only women. It's a symbolic point, but the role models are very important. Like everything, you can say, yes, we must get this done. But unless you can point to someone who is actually there and has done it, the words are fairly empty. I certainly agree on the role model point, and you'll be pleased to know that I'm one of the newer um, fellows that was elected <laughs> a year or two ago now as an honorary fellow, so that which was absolutely brilliant. Delighted. But it's been a big change. <laughs> big change. Big change. Um, what would a more inclusive and diverse industry make possible for humanity? Uh, I think, first of all, we're bound to have better ideas, and we're bound to have better execution because we gain access to people of great accomplishment, not just because they're of a certain color, type, or background. The second point is, if you're designing something uh, that's going to be used by the population at large, how can you design it if the only engineers and designers around are men? I just don't think they can do a very good job. Culturally, it's not right. I think we get better outcomes, and I think that's essential. And thirdly, we are opening up the future for people. And anything that we can do to open up the future is important, especially people who might otherwise not have a future, for example, in the Global South. This discussion has really clarified for me that optimism isn't just about seeing the good in things. And engineering isn't just about new ideas or new inventions. It's about moving forward thoughtfully, believing that things can be better and also caring for the people in our industry and in society more generally. I really enjoyed my conversation with John. I thought he was amazing because he sees the connection, not just between an ancient hand axe and a wristwatch, but also the connection between the importance of a truly inclusive workplace and our ability to prepare for the future. Each of these things moves us forward and each of them speaks to our humanity. But what about this fear that we might be feeling? Maybe it is possible to harness that fear and to use it to inform what we should do next and focus on solutions to do good. You've been listening to Create the Future, a podcast from the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering and Peanut and Crumb. Our guest today was Lord John Brown. This episode was presented by me, Roma Agrawal, and was produced by Jude Shapiro. Look out for new episodes every fortnight with conversations from pioneering engineers, designers, technologists and thinkers. We'll be exploring topics such as decolonizing the engineering curriculum, sustainable water supplies and living, breathing buildings. To find out more, follow QE Prize on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Facebook.